Welcome to Currents, your leading global voice of maternal feminism. As maternal feminists, we are inviting you to join us, using our voices in the public square for the things that deeply matter, our faith, our families, and our maternal identities. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers and women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in our homes, our communities, and our world. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Currents, a podcast of Big Ocean Women. My name is Dana Robb and I will be your host. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers, women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in their homes, their communities, and the world. Each season, we do a special episode that focuses on a discussion about a book or a movie and how it relates to one or more of our Big Ocean tenants. We've already discuss the book Eleni, a biography taking place in Greece right after World War II, and the documentary It's a Girl, and I highly recommend you go check out both of those episodes. Today we will be discussing Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers by Gordon Neufeld and Gabor Matei. And I've invited two friends to share their insights about the book. I know they both feel passionately about this topic. We have Emily Judd. Hi. And Trisha Kelly. Hello, everyone. Originally, I'd planned on creating one episode from our discussion, but there's so much good content I didn't want to cut out. And instead of creating one long episode, I've decided to break it into two. Today's episode will cover mainly the symptoms and problems of peer orientation. And then our next episode will cover prevention and solutions. But let's get back to our guests. So I'm thinking it'd be good to let our audience get to know you a little bit. If you just take a moment to introduce yourself, let's go ahead and start with Trisha. Hi, everyone. I am the mother of six children. I live in Payson, Utah. I have five siblings, which includes an identical twin. Yes, there's two of me walking around. I remarried two years ago, but ever since I can remember, since I could like young, young, young little girl. I remember that I've been really curious and hungry to learn about the relationship that parents have with their children and how that dynamic plays out in the home. So I'm really excited to discuss the topic of this book. It's so critical, especially because right now I am working on my bachelor's degree in marriage and family studies. So thank you, Dana, for the opportunity to do this. So excited to have you. Uh, My name is Emily Judd. I live in Mesa, Arizona. I have six sons. Uh, I grew up in San Diego. Uh, My husband from Florida, he is currently active duty in the army. Uh, We've moved more than a dozen times all over the U.S. But we lived it. We've, we've been in Arizona. uh, I would say half our, half our marriage. We've been married 20 years. I love raising boys. I do cry sometimes that I don't get to buy pink ribbons, but <laughs> otherwise I'm definitely a boy mom. I, I think that's fun that we, the three of us together, we have 18 kids. We each have six, <laughs> which I think is pretty unique that yeah. our kids range from mid twenties all the way down to my six month old. And I have definitely as reading this book, have seen some of those attachments characteristics play out, you know, as they're naturally supposed to in my infant. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. One of the tenets of Big Ocean that I love is the model of powerful impact. 
It's this idea that change starts from within, then moves outward to affect our homes, the community, and the world, much like a pond rippling from center outward when you throw a pebble in. And I've always felt one of the most important places of influence is in our home with our own children. And that's why I'm really excited to discuss this book. We'll get into the meat of the book, but first I want to know from you ladies, what impact has this book had on you and your family? For me, it has really impacted the way that I see my relationships with my children. I see them very differently. I see the challenges that I face with them differently. And because of that change of perspective, I am able to respond differently than I otherwise would be able to do and respond in a way that is more healthy for their maturing and growing and for our attachment with each other. Yeah, I I totally agree. I feel like the book has been a major shift for me um, in being a more intentional parent. You hear all the things that are good ideas And after reading, hold on to your kids. These are not just good ideas. These are essential ideas. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you see why something as simple as like Sesame street that tells you to read to your kids. You're like, they're not joking around. (laughs) So it has put it for close forefront in my mind that I need to be intentionally gathering my children daily and Mm -hmm. I need to be less critical. Absolutely. I just, I wasn't treating each child like they were irreplaceable. I was treating them more of like a soldier that needed to fall in line. Right. And Mm -hmm. that needed, that needed to change. They needed to feel my unconditional love that was there, that is there, but it wasn't being expressed because I was trying to get soldiers in line to conform. My soul has changed because of this book. Yeah. There's a paragraph from the intro that I think sums up what you're trying to say, right? I don't know about you, but when I've had a problem with my children, my first assumption is I need to learn a new skill or I need to come Mm -hmm. up with a different approach to deal with this behavior. And the book is written under the premise that without attachment, there is no parenting. You cannot even influence your child. It doesn't matter what skills you have. You can't influence them without attachment. So I just want to read this first paragraph. He says, the modern obsession with parenting as a set of skills to be followed along lines recommended by experts is really the the result of lost intuitions Mm -hmm. and of a lost relationship with children previous generations could take for granted. That is what parenthood is, a relationship. Biology or marriage or adoption may appoint us to take on that relationship, but only a two-way connection with our child can secure it. When our parenthood is secure... Natural instincts are activated that dictate far more astutely than any expert how to nurture and teach the young ones under our care. And so what this book asserts is that it's not about having a specific skill set that makes you a good parent, but the right type of relationship. And so we're going to go into that. What, What does attachment look like and how does it get askew? What is peer orientation and how do we prevent it if it hasn't happened? And how do we reclaim our children if it has happened real quick off of um, that quote what came to mind when you read it and continually throughout the book and when I've shared the book with others is how did Christ lead Um, we're a Christian family and often we read the Bible but it's hard to put it into action 
you know, and so we see Christ and he is the shepherd and we follow him. And I think that I was very much stuck in this place where I was pushing my flock and the Mm -hmm. book really helped open my eyes into what the savior is trying to teach me and to come follow me. Like they Mm -hmm. want to be with me. They want to follow me because I created that relationship. Yeah, that's beautiful. Exactly. So let's talk about attachment. Do either of you want to take a stab at defining that for us? What I put down, um, what I got out of it was that attachment is a lifeline to maturity. And I made me think of Confucius when he said that we need to uh, connect with our elders and it was a path up, right? This is what we need to go, go to. Um, and attachment is which way you are going to connect. You know, and so are we going to connect up or are we going to connect out? Yeah, it really is this power to influence. Attachment is a force of attraction pulling two bodies together, right? That's the the basic, most simply stated definition, but it really comes down to this power to influence. Let's move into peer orientation. Let's define that really quickly and then talk about why that interferes with a a healthy attachment. My, um, my summary of pure orientation after the book was this horizontal shift that I talked about, right? These kids are are attaching horizontally and it made me feel like they're, they're in the current, right? Mm -hmm. You get, when you get in the ocean and you're horizontal, you're, you're in the rip, right? I grew up in San Diego. You knew don't get caught in the riptide because you're going to get pulled out to sea. And that's how I, that's how I picture this pure orientation is you are stuck in the riptide and you are just mm. going to be lost. And the, the peer, the children, my own children and the ones around me that I see caught in the rip, right. They're very much stuck. But when we, if we had choose to attach up, right. If we pull our children out of the rip and we get them on top, right. All of a sudden we're a sailboat. We've got mm-hmm. the wind and we are free. We are now free to navigate anywhere we want to go. That's awesome. Yes. It's a great analogy. Um, And if like that orientation is a real natural instinct, it's how mammals are actually designed and us humans more particularly to be able to get our needs met. We need to orient someone to know what cues to take, what, how to respond, how to react, how to, it's, it's what gives us a sense of who we are what is real, why things happen, what is good, what things mean. So if you're attaching to the right person and you're orienting to that person to meet your needs, then you move along and you develop in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. But if that attachment goes towards our peers, like you're saying in that riptide, then we, we get lost and we, we do not have a healthy attachment, but why is that? Why can't we have healthy attachments with our peers? Why does it need to be with a loving adult? (laughs) Because peers themselves are not emotionally mature. They don't have that commitment, that responsibility. And so without that commitment and responsibility, there are times when they just don't care what they say or do and yes. how it hurts children. And yes. that's impactful because if our children are attached to that peer, it wounds that attachment. And so that's why as parents, we were designed by nature to be the primary attachment for our children. Babies come into the world very dependent, helpless without their parents. And as they grow and mature, you know, we provide food and safety and everything that they need. And as they grow and mature, that 
that desire to orient is very powerful. Like it's a survival mm-hmm. instinct that we have. And as they grow and mature into older and older children, that desire to orient is still there. I mean, a lot of adults out there are saying that children need their peers, they need, you know, social time. But really, what this book shows is that they need that attachment, that healthy attachment with their parents, because their parents, when they're the orienting part of their life, the parent can orient them with wisdom and experience, even just that intuition that comes with being a parent. Mm-hmm. So if the attachment is healthy with that loving adult, so with the parent or whoever it may be, then it's then peer connection is safe and it's okay mm-hmm. because they are reorienting back to the adult yeah. as their main attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me, it makes me down. It makes me think of um, a couple years ago, we had um, a couple of suicides mm-hmm. And both my, my older children and my middle-aged children and one of the young girls, she, she had two best friends and she had good, good parents, um, God fearing family. And, uh, she was going through the hard times in junior high, a hard time trying to figure out who you are. Um, in this day and age, some of her friends are trying to figure out their sexuality, you know, um, that's, that's heavy stuff. So on a really bad day, she went and got a gun out of her dad's car. She came back in and she called one of her best friends and her best friend didn't answer because she was with another friend and was like, Oh, that would hurt her if I answered. Right. So here again, the peer is not mature enough to say, Hey, I need to answer this phone call. She might not be okay. Oh no, I don't want to hurt her. I'm not going to answer. So the young lady with the gun calls her second best friend. They FaceTime. She answers, she shows her the gun and the little friend says, you're being stupid and hangs Mm. up on her. That little girl took her life that night with her parents in the home. She didn't think her parents understood. She wasn't attached. Those parents, good, loving parents thought they were giving her what she needed. Mm. You know, she had time with her friends. She had a phone to connect with her friends. Those friends did not know what to do during a crisis. Yeah. Oh, it's tragic. Yeah. Children are not designed to orient other children. Yep. They're just barely figuring out where they belong in this world. And yet they're thrust together with long periods of not being supervised, you know, at schools or and society. Yeah. When when the counselors have come in during these crisis times, which we've had happen a couple of times the last few years, they're trying to prepare the children to take care of the children. Yeah. And that is not fair or right. We are creating more trauma for the kids all around saying, if you would have seen these signs, if you would Mm -hmm. have been at the crossroads, this is not their responsibility. responsibility. They're creating a bigger problem. Yeah. One of the things they talk about in the book is, you know, we have to think about orienting like a a magnet that we've Mm -hmm. got two poles and we can only go toward one. We can't go toward both at the same time. Adults or parents and peers have two different sets of values and -hmm. our attachment brains cannot go back and forth. They have to choose one and stay there. Mm -hmm. We could talk about the contributing factors. You know, why is this an issue now? when it maybe wasn't so much for our, ch- our parents. And I think it was a little bit, I could talk about my own 
peer orientation. But, you know, going back 50, 100 years, there wasn't this problem. Good question. Well, I think the book said that it started with the war, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I love that he does not hold um, women responsible. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like you went to work and you're ditching out on your children. That is not mm-hmm. the case because we can't attach if we're att- intentional. Mm-hmm. But what happened yeah. is that plan to be intentional wasn't there when mom went to work. And so now how are we going to do it? You know, are we still having family dinners? Are we still um, connecting through a family night? Are we still studying our morals together at night? How, mm-hmm. how are we going to reconnect? Are we having dates with our kids? Yeah. Um, are we greeting and- them at the door when they come home from school? I'm so glad you're here. I decided after reading this book recently that my, I will always tuck my kids in until they move out. And they balked for about that for a little bit, but I thought you're going to bed. This is our departure, you know, our emotional distance. I want to say good night to you. Yeah. Yeah. And there were other, like, I think it happened so gradually as our mm-hmm. society shifted but we've lost a lot of connection to extended family. We've become more mobile as a people. So we Mm -hmm. don't stay in the same place with the same group of adults around us. We don't have that connection with the corner shopkeeper Mm -hmm. or a personal relationship with our doctor who knew all of our family members and our grandparents. Mm -hmm. We don't have connection to those people who provide services. A lot of society has become more secularized. And so like, Mm -hmm. You were saying, Emily, we don't have connection to morals as much, but we also don't have that supporting cast from our church community. Mm -hmm. What I'm surprised is that adults have shifted. Hmm. They don't feel a responsibility to connect with kids. They think that I was talking to a mother and she had founded this amazing school years ago here, here in Mesa. And she was talking about in junior high, she had a lot of kids, maybe 10 And she talked about junior high and how the kids just pulled away. Cause I said, are you so close to your boys? Do you love your boys? And she goes, well, you know how they pull away. And I was like, yeah, but you pull back. (laughs) (laughs) And she thought that was a part of society. She thought that was Mm -hmm. part of the norm. Yeah. And that's what I see. I see in youth activities, I see the leaders standing on the sidelines and I feel like I'm the cheerleader for you know, parents, mm-hmm. please participate. Please show them example. Please guide them. You know, I, I think that we are confused on what our role is. Absolutely. Well, and that misunderstanding of, you know, the pulling away that, that thinking that that's normal, well, it has become normal, but it's not healthy and it's not natural. Absolutely. Um, there's actually a really cool scenario in the book that kind of puts this into the right perspective. So, you know, when parents experience that teenage rebellion, sometimes it comes earlier. In fact, in fact, it comes, it's been coming earlier a lot more. Oh yeah. So there's a scenario of a a girl who's 14 and her behavior starts to bother her parents. She is not as happy sitting down with dinner. She's obsessive about her privacy. She's become rude and secretive and all this. And so her dad starts thinking, I need to lay down the law get her back in line, you know, and none of that's working. So the author puts this into a perspective, like, let's consider this from the adult realm. Imagine that your spouse or your lover suddenly begins to act strangely, Mm -hmm. won't look you in the eye, rejects physical contact. You know, it goes through all of these scenarios. 
So you go to your friends, you're like, I don't know what to do. And there you say, well, have you tried a timeout? Are, have you imposed any limits? Have you made sure what your expectations are? No, we don't think like that with our, our spouse or lover because we are not looking at a behavior problem, but a relationship problem. We're thinking, is my spouse having an affair? Is, is he is he cheating on me or is she is she interested in something else? You know, this this idea of relationship is what's behind it, not the behavior. We got to pull back the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've made that mistake personally, Dana. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I you relate know, so well to that that dynamic that he explained. That's actually a great way to look at that relationship with our mm-hmm. children. Yeah. yeah, we want to lay down the lot, but we really need to be like, this child needs to connect with me. I need to gather them back in. Mm-hmm. So let's look at some of the ways attachment supports effective parenting. So my question at the beginning of this little discussion is what enables us to parent? Just think about that. You get up and you do your, you start your day with your children. What enables you as a parent? Now, just imagine maybe 25 years ago, (laughs) you can remember this. Imagine Mm -hmm. driving a car without power steering. <laughs> I've I've had that actually recently with one of my my cars that that lost the power steering ability. What was it like, Dana? Oh, you know, trying to turn. It's you're impossible. using all the force of both uh-huh. hands on one side of the wheel. Yeah, yeah, and think about rolling up the window by hand every time you need to get it up or down. Oh, mm-hmm. I remember those days. And he he likens that the power of the parenting relationship to power steering in the car or power windows, the parenting relationship was designed to be power assisted. Now in our world, that word power has become a dirty word, like, Mm. oh, powerful, you know, the abuse of power, or it's, it's been used in wrong ways. But in this context, power, he defines it as a spontaneous authority to parent. And I love that. I just love that so much because something actually inside of me resonates with that. It is natural for us to have authority to parent our children and to influence them. We actually need that, you know, eat your dinner, you know, go to sleep so you can be healthy and strong, get your clothes on, wear a coat when it's cold outside. Yeah, I think we need to differentiate between power and force, right? Yes, power yes. does not mean force. Right, right. Well, I love what he says. So when we have this healthy attachment dynamic that nature just organized for us, we don't have to invoke force or bribes or rewards or punishments because, yeah. because that natural ability to guide and love our children, because they look to us for love and the things that they need, it just naturally draws out that desire for the child to listen to us, to respond to our requests and directions. Can I just share? So a highlight for me recently is I have um, a 13 year old and we've chosen in a way to attach intentionally to take him to school and bring him home without the carpool. And there's a lot of people that want to carpool. Can I get a ride? You know, no, this is my one-on-one time. This child is very attached and it's so beautiful. He's resilient at school. Uh, he's happy. And the other day we got out, it was Saturday chores, right? And he had his list on the whiteboard that he got up and he just went down his list and he just checked off all his chores. 
And I thought to myself, like, why didn't this happen with the two middle children? (laughs) (laughs) Why is it always a fight with them? But it's a perfect example. I put in enough that he is going to follow my guidance without having to bribe or push. Right. And, you know, another dynamic is, you know, our children's neediness is very much evident when they're born. But even as they grow and mature, that neediness, the power to execute those responsibilities as a parent is not just in their is not in their neediness, but it's in their looking to us to be taking care of, not just for food, clothing, shelter, but and other material concerns, but also for that most important element of emotional and psychological nurturing. And what's interesting to me is he says, after these material concerns are taken care of, the child can focus on that emotional and psychological nurturing. So how many of us have felt the frustration of a child who does not look to us for guidance? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think everyone can relate to that frustration. The important thing to remember in that moment is that their dependency needs have not vanished. Right. Yeah. But they have only been misplaced by their peers. Yep. This was a big deal to me when COVID hit. My children didn't have to be out the door at 7:30 a.m. And I was very committed to uh, making breakfast for these boys. They're athletes, they run from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. That's my part to make sure I fill them with this hearty breakfast. But COVID hit, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> they're in their jammies, they don't have to work out with the team. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for them to learn to be independent. (laughs) Mm, There's that word. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's like a dirty word. (laughs) And so I decided like, I don't, I don't have to do this anymore. Hey, you guys, you can make your own eggs. You know, this is what you need to do. You can be in charge of making a pot of oatmeal. And I lost a lifeline with one of my children when Mm. I stopped making breakfast. And I didn't know it. It took a year to say, to look back and say, Hey, when did Mm. things start going south? You know, Mm. why am I having these issues? Mm -hmm. And I, it was just an impression that came upon me that breakfast was one of his dependents being fed Mm. by me was a fulfilling thing to him that, that increased my attachment. And I lost that. Yeah. Dana, what were some of the ways that children attach? There's like several different ways. Do you remember that? Yes. Um, And how reaching some of those is really important, especially the ones that where they attach in that way. The first one is the one we see most in in infants, you know, the actual physical connection. The physical proximity. Yeah, proximity. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Also through senses. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maintaining contact, which is interesting as in our world, often we want our children to not maintain so much contact. So they're not so dependent, but actually what he says is that desire to be close to us is nature working its magic. Yes. That it's actually healthy for my six month old to want to cling to me Uh and that I shouldn't push him into others' arms until he feels secure. That that could be the beginning of severing that attachment that is Mm -hmm. so necessary. Do you, do you remember what came to my mind when he was talking about this was like a nest and I picture a bird and in my mind, I I'm not, I'm not sure of this, but the baby bird jumps out of the nest, you know, when it's it's ready. Yes. 
Yes, it is not mm. mama bird. You know, all the nature shows that I've watched with my kids, those baby birds are taking that plunge on their own. And I'm ready. Like, yeah, when huge, they're ready. Huge wake up call for us to stop pushing and start loving. Yeah. yeah. So going back to that idea of dependence versus independence, mm. we don't need to push it. They will get there when they're ready. And some of them stay a little bit longer and need to cling to us a little bit longer. And that's okay. We, we should honor that process because we cannot force it in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, those six ways of attaching the first belonging and loyalty, then we have significance seeking to matter to somebody feeling, which is feeling the warm feelings, loving feelings, affectionate feelings, and emotional intimacy Mm -hmm. being known is another way. Yeah. Acknowledged, recognized. Um, yeah. Okay. And sameness. That was the other one. Yeah. Um, wanting to be like the other. We see this in young children who want to model their parents. Mm-hmm. And then the senses. We talked about that yeah. one too. Yeah. You know, and I didn't, I didn't realize that period orientation, you know, how you said for generations, you dressed like what your parents dressed like, mm-hmm. you know, culture. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're losing that. Yes. And watching my son, not want to dress like any of his siblings, not willing to wear the hand-me-downs, you know, but not even willing to buy school clothes until he went to school to to see see what what everyone else was wearing. He actually won't go shopping with me. He will only go shopping with his peers because of that sameness. And it's, it's crazy for me to watch, but they wear jackets when it's 110 degrees mm-hmm. and they wear no jackets when it's 50 degrees, right? All about sameness. They have totally lost the intention with their comfort because they want to be the same. same. Which again, shows that polarity. Well, if my parents are wearing a jacket when it's cold, I better not because yeah. I need to look different from those that I'm, I'm trying to separate from. Something I thought was a really interesting take that is often talked about in our culture um, is that we're hearing a lot about labels, mm-hmm. ADHD, oppositional defiance disorder, kids are even being diagnosed with bipolar and all of these things. And, you know, we feel frustrated about our impotence as parents. And so we look to other sources to find a way to solve our problems, which is, you know, one of those ways is to find a label, which I'm not, I'm not downplaying the importance of understanding any kind of physical dynamic that's going on. But what we learned from Gordon is that there are risks involved when we rely heavily on those labels and diagnoses. And some of those risks are that we ignore the scientific evidence that says that the human brain is shaped by the environment from birth through the lifetime and that attachment relationships are the most important aspect of a child's environment. Yes. Yeah. And these, these solutions narrow down without even considering the impact of peer relationships. Yeah. You know, there was a story of a young man in there that um, had been, been diagnosed with like probably four labels and they found that by getting to the core attachment issues, that they were able to narrow down those diagnoses to like mild ADHD. And then the rest of the issues just melted away. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that if we should be careful about relying heavily on those medical labels, because they also make us dependent on experts instead of inviting us to look inside 
to face our own futility and say, this isn't working. What do I need to do now? What, what am I feeling like is happening? And trust that intuition that comes, even though it may run counter to what the experts are saying. Yeah. Go back to that internal compass that mm-hmm. these children were given to us. And if we really look at the situation, we can find the answers. And it really will come back at some point, to some degree, to attachment. Let's talk about counter will for a minute. What is it? Why is it important to understand? This is an interesting dynamic because we, when we explain what it really means, we might think, well, this is a bad thing. But counter will in a healthy and a well-attached child actually fosters um, emotional independence in a healthy way. Like counter will gives a child the ability to kind of put up a little fence around themselves while they kind of test things out like different tastes in music or food or interests or values. But what counter will looks like in a peer attached child is they are totally repelled by anything their parents want to teach them. Mm-hmm. They don't, they want the, say the parent wants the child to eat at the dinner table. They're like, well, you want that. I'm not attached to you. So just forget it. I'm going to just go eat dinner in my bedroom. Or if the parent wants them to go out to dinner, they're like, no way. Like I wouldn't seen in public with you guys, you know, but in like in a healthy, in a well-attached child that, that might look like, um, you know, a difference of opinion in what we have for dinner or a difference in opinion of what I wear, mm. you know, within these parameters, it is very natural for children to have a different desire than their parents. It's just fine tuning that awareness that your child is being influenced by you, but still developing that independence. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize that this is happening subconsciously. They're not aware of what they're doing. And its primary purpose is to protect them from strangers asking them to do something. They're not going to be obedient to everybody. Right. Just the people they are attached to. Yeah. Yeah. And it protects them from being misled or coerced by people they're not attached to, which in a peer situation, it makes it, it can make it very toxic because they will do everything they can to please their peers, but their peers will never be happy with them because there's not that, you know, there's not that commitment, that responsibility. The responsibility. Yeah. That's the key. That's one of the reasons why peer orientation is so dangerous is because they don't care about the outcome. They are not Mm -hmm. looking long-term. What is this child? What do I want this child to become? Because they are themselves are also children looking out for their own needs. Right. And like, because a peer oriented child is looking to their peers to influence them on what's acceptable, you know, um, as far as music, taste, preferences, values, it actually stunts their ability to grow and mature emotionally into healthy, independent adults. It really does because their peers just don't have the capacity to orient them and to give them room to be different as they experiment with different things, which is very healthy part of development, you know, to be different, to try that in peer oriented culture, children get made fun of for being different for thinking outside of the box, for crying, for being emotional, for wanting to express themselves in a way that's different than the peer culture. We see that when we have that attachment, that 
healthy attachment dynamic and someone else comes along to try to change that dynamic, they're like, doesn't fit, you know, like my internal compass is saying this feels different, you know, and that's where that can help with children in the peer culture Mm -hmm. that they find themselves in. It's interesting for me. I feel like I was very attached to my mother and not Mm -hmm. my father. So there were things that I felt like were helpful because my father was kind of manipulative, but it didn't affect me because I wasn't attached. So he could say things and it really rolled off my back. Mm. Um, But when I look back at the decisions I made, as I talked to some of um, some of my son's friends are going off to college, you know, you have to make these decisions, you know, um, are you going to be sexually active? You know, are you going to drink? Are you, you know, where are you going to stand on, you know, marijuana? Like these are things that um, are very much in your face in college. And uh, as I looked back at those decisions for myself, hands down, this was my processing. My mother never drank. I'm not going to either. Mm. It wasn't that my mom told me not to drink that that wasn't it. It was, I chose because my mother didn't. Mm. Um, I also chose my relationships because of my mother's influence. I Mm. knew what she told me was best. And that is the way that I went. And so if I wasn't attached to my mother, I feel like I would be in a totally different place right now. Interesting. There's that passing down of a culture. It just happens naturally. Yes. You know, and that's what we lose with a period oriented world. Yes. That natural hierarchy and the natural ability to influence our children just every day. You know? Yes. And that culture is now getting passed on horizontally rather than mm-hmm. vertically. That's a perfect example. If we want our children to carry our values into their life, we need to make sure we have a good attachment with them. Yeah. Well, interesting. I think the way my mom attached is she told me I was perfect, which is an extreme overstatement. Um, (laughs) I don't know where she learned it. I don't know what her intuition was on that, but she told it to all her children and she just wasn't critical. And I look back and there were so many things she could have been critical on and she Mm. wasn't critical of her children and it kept us very attached yeah you wanted to please her that leads into this thought that I have that attachment works to make a child want to be good for the parent if you know it's that same dynamic with a child or with a pet owner and their dog it's that same dynamic so why is it so important for parents to believe in the child's intention to be good like with your mother I, I love how he said that because mm-hmm. I think my child's not good. How can I believe he's good? <laughs> but his intention to be good. And I used that line this weekend and my child who doesn't talk to me very much, you know, I have this <laughs> peer oriented child. And I said, I know he was, he runs away at night. He just leaves in the middle of the night to go and be with his friends because he's not attached. Right. So then he feels empty. That compass is telling him, I need to be with somebody. So he mm-hmm. wakes up and he goes and finds a friend to be with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to him, I said, Hey, you know, do you think you're going to be able to stay home tonight? <laughs> and uh, 
he like kind of looks at me like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to talk to you about this, you know? Mm-hmm. And the line I used was, I know, I know you want to do good. And that led to a two hour conversation into the night of him. Do you know when I started sneaking out? Do you know why? Like he just, he felt heard. He felt validated. Mm. I know you want to do good. Yeah. They need to hear that from us more often. Yeah. And when we, when we believe that their intention is not to be good, it takes the wind out of their sails and it hurts them because like they really do desire to be good. Yeah. I think you're robbing them of humanity when you tell them. Absolutely. Big mistake. One thing that I thought was really interesting is you said, it is a child's desire to be good for us that warrants our trust, not their ability to perform to our expectations. Yep. Yes. And that was a shifting point for me. I, if every parent you know, can get that in your mind, you know, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about vulnerability. What happens to kids who are peer oriented? What happens to their vulnerability? This was eye opening to me. Yeah. My, my take on it was, um, vulnerability is meaning you need to stay in the pain. But if you're not mature enough to know that you need to stay in it to move through it, like the stages of grief, then you're going to want to turn that off. I don't want to hurt. So then you're going to try to turn off feeling as, as people do that, as people shut off vulnerability, life gets black and white. All of a sudden your life doesn't look like it's in color anymore. It doesn't look very fulfilling. And then you have to seek for these highs and your high might be, jumping off a bridge, right? Like I want to rush or I want to steal something. I want to be seen by my peers doing something extreme. I want to drive fast. I want to, it actually, when you choose not to be in vulnerability, you know, that can lead you into sexual relationships that are strong. There's all these strong passions in life that if you're not going to be vulnerable, you're going to, you know, you're going to shut down then you're going to shut down feeling and then you're going to crave these stronger passions. Yeah. yeah. It leads to a host of other challenges or difficulties yeah. that aren't going to fulfill you. They yeah. are not long lasting. They don't make you feel good long-term. Like you have to move through the stages of grief, right? You have to, when you mess up, whether you make a mistake, you have to stay in the vulnerability if you're going to heal and grow. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how he talks about vulnerability within the peer groups that once a child becomes invulnerable, then they shun it in other kids mm-hmm. and they start picking on kids who look vulnerable. That, mm-hmm. that is really interesting. And it's an important understanding for us to be able to understand the bullying and the other um, difficulties that children face with their peer groups. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've, I've seen it just this weekend. I took a group of girls to San Diego and um, we had, we had 10 girls. Okay. Ages 11 to 14. Um, And understanding this knowledge, you know, what's going on at home. There were a couple of girls and they don't fit in very well. One was heavy and one was, one was cute and small, but just doesn't have the social skills 
to fit in. The girls kind of pull away from her. Maybe she's a little annoying, but the trip to her was boring, right? Kids that are peer attached, you know, and, and this vulnerability thing, they, um, they struggle with being bored. Um, Mm -hmm. They also, she also had to be in a book all the time. Like she had to be, she couldn't be present, right? Which again, you're, you're running from the vulnerability because no one wants to be with you. So you pull, you pull away, right? I don't want to be in this hurt. You know, she had girls literally, I can't sit next to her in the car. I have to move. And that would be hurt. That would be hurtful. Mm. And she couldn't identify what she was doing to be annoying. She just was like, she was blaming um, another issue. But then there was this second young lady who didn't have a lot of strong connections with her peers, but she was happy. She was outgoing. She was confident. She was um, heavy and it didn't slow her down from doing any of the activities in any way. She was conversational. She had passion. She had ideas. She could connect with the adults. And I just lit up and thought, oh, this girl like has it all together. Wow. And I came home and I told her mom, like, I enjoyed getting to know your daughter so much. And she was such a delight. And she said, we hit the jack jackbox with her. <laughs> and I thought, look at what's coming from home. Home is saying, you are the apple of my eye. Mm-hmm. You are irreplaceable. You are um, treasuring. Yes. Yeah. loved. So the bullying can happen, but the resilience is there. Mom and dad, exactly. says I'm, yeah, mom and dad says I'm great. So I'm great. It, you know, it's okay that I'm not going to your party or I'm not going to you know, um, your activity or that you want to sit next to me, but where mom and dad haven't cemented, you know, that you are their everything, (laughs) then they're lost among Mm -hmm. their peers. This would be so helpful for schools, parents to understand just for this fact of bullying, we're looking at it the wrong way, not necessarily need to be accepted by their peers. They need to have a strong, healthy attachment at home. Mm -hmm. And then all of the bullying can just wash off. It's not going to take place because they know who they are. They talk in the book, the authors mentioned how attachment is both a sword and a shield. Attachment mm-hmm. divides the world into those who can hurt you and those who can't. Attachment and vulnerability, these two great themes of human existence go hand in hand. So if a child is, is attached to a, an adult, they have a shield mm-hmm. up against all of the other um, uh, what's the word? All the, uh, any, any influences or influence, right. Yeah. So they have a shield up. Those who are attached to their parents have a shield up against all of the other influences of the world. Mm-hmm. But when we fail to keep our children attached to us and to the other adults responsible for them, mm-hmm. we've taken away their shields and we've put mm-hmm. a sword in the hand of their okay. peers. Absolutely. Yeah. Because their peers ultimately don't care what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And we allow, we allow their peers to influence them. That is our responsibility. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. And this is where we're going to pause our discussion for today. We've covered a lot of the aspects of peer orientation in this episode, and I hope it has been informative. There's a fascinating story toward the middle of the book that emphasizes how this peer orientation is not exclusive to our human population, but can be found in the animal kingdom as well. And I want to end this episode by sharing that story. 
So there was an elephant population in a South African wildlife reserve that could no longer be sustained, and the park rangers decided to kill many of the adult elephants, whose young were old enough to survive without them. So these young elephants grew up fatherless. As time went on, many of these young elephants began to roam together in gangs and began to do things elephants normally don't do. They started throwing sticks and water at rhinos. They were acting like the neighborhood bullies. A few young males grew especially violent, knocking down rhinos, stepping on them, and crushing the life out of them. The solution was to bring in a large male to lead them and to counteract their bully behaviors, and it's incredible what happened. Soon, this new male established dominance and put the young bulls in their place, and the killings of the rhinos stopped. This story tells me two things. First, when parents are removed as the main attachment, bullying and peer orientation are natural side effects. But it also tells us that these behaviors can be reversed. That's what gives me hope. At Big Ocean, we believe in generative solutions. As we work together, we can find the solutions that span the generations. Peer orientation is an issue that needs a generative solution. We also believe that the family is core. We cannot counteract peer orientation without bringing it back to the family and reestablishing a parent attachment. In our next episode, we will talk more about prevention and solutions to reclaim our children. In the meantime, if this conversation has stirred your interest, grab the book, delve into it, and hold on to your kids. You have been listening to Currents, a podcast by Big Ocean Women. You can find us on the internet at bigoceanwomen.org, on Instagram, and on Facebook. We are each one powerful drop in a big ocean of change. Join us in one of our local chapters, Waves, or Women Achieving Vast Empowerment. Our music is First Rain by Ian Post. Editing and production is by Fifth East Productions. Please join us again next week for in-depth discussion about interesting ideas and about people who are trying to make a difference in their communities.